Welcome to the Awakening Church Podcast. We exist to awaken this generation to new life in Christ. Thanks for tuning in. To find out more, go to awakeningchurch.com. Hi there, everyone. Good morning. If I have not met you or you are new, my name is Felicia Larson, and I am one of the pastors here on staff. I count it a sincere privilege to get to end our third um, episode, to our third episode in this series of Habit of Grace. Today is our last day in this series, and I am just so grateful to be talking to you today about the communion meal, which is part of our Habit of Grace. Speaking of meals, I want to tell you about the greatest cook that I ever knew, my dad. He was one of, the gra- one of the greatest joys that he had was to watch people eat his food. I don't know if you know anybody like this, but he got a thrill cooking, grilling, baking. His favorite part was once he was finished cooking and everything was set out, to watch people pile their plates high and go sit down, and all you could hear was the sound of the utensils on the plate. <laughs> He would walk in and he would say, well, it must be good because I don't hear y'all talking. Of course, that was his way of eliciting some sort of praise about his food, and he was worth it because it was that good. He was, as my family would say, a man who could throw down in the kitchen. Fourth of July, I remembered him this week because that was probably his favorite holiday. He would host a huge cookout in the local park and everyone was invited. And that was a lot of people. You see, my dad had this huge idea of the idea of family. He invited coworkers and friends and neighbors and even ex-girlfriends. Don't ask me why, but he did. (laughs) You see, my dad's idea of family was everyone was welcome. No one was left out. And so every 4th of July, was like hosting a family reunion. My dad was a grill master, but not just on 4th of July. He was probably, like some of you, a crazy Raider fan. And he was the person who sat out tailgating, doing all of the food. I mean, he prepared Cajun food. He prepared all these things. And his praises were sang, literally, in the Coliseum Arena, like people would come out just to see him because he would set up a big tent and serve food. I I tell you, it was crazy. It's been 13 years, though, since he passed away. And just before he passed away, he was in culinary school, of all things, hoping to realize his dream of becoming a restaurateur. Well, I can tell you, I am nothing like my dad in the kitchen, but I did get his sweet tooth. And my, my, the, the favorite thing of my dad's was his lemon meringue pie. Now, let me tell you, the meringue was high and toasted beautifully. The lemon filling was impeccable. And since he's passed away, I have tried a lot of pies, and they all pale in comparison. I'm not sure if it was my dad's love for food. My love for him or just the hint of lime in that lemon filling. But whenever I even try a lemon meringue pie, I do it in remembrance of my dad. Meals bring families together. 
whether it's the tradition of a Sunday dinner or like we just celebrated a holiday or if it's a meal for those in mourning after memorial service. Food brings families together in one place to celebrate and to remember. Today, we're going to talk about a significant meal in the life of the church. We celebrate this meal to remember our Savior. Each week, we come together in this sort of family reunion. We may have started out as co-workers, neighbors, or friends, but when we come to the communion table, we are family. We have that same identity that we share as children of God. We are forgiven, redeemed, and adopted. This meal goes by a few names, depending on your church tradition, where you grew up, what denomination you may have grown up in. You may have heard it called the Lord's Supper. In your Bible, when you get to those, the end, usually of near the ends of most of the Gospels, you'll see that, the Lord's Supper. So there's also the Eucharist, another name that I heard a lot, but until I was preparing for this sermon, I never bothered to look it up and figure out what it meant. <laughs> but the Eucharist is the word that is used in like Episcopal churches, Catholic churches, and Lutheran churches. I found out that this word means thanksgiving. So you got a bulletin when you came in. If you're taking notes, that's your first one. The Eucharist means thanksgiving. That is, just reminds me, though, how we are to approach this table. We are to approach it bursting with thanksgiving for what Jesus did for us. And around awakening, we call this meal communion. That means fellowship. That reminds us that communion is a time where we come together because we are unified by Jesus Christ. Today, we're going to take a deep dive into this meaning behind this meal that brings us together as family into fellowship with an attitude of thanksgiving in remembrance of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. But before we dive in, let's pray. Father, thank you so much for the privilege of bringing your word today. I pray that your people would hear from you, that you would teach through me. I ask God that when all of this is said and done, that we are family and that we come to your communion table knowing what it really means. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, for the note takers, like I said, get out your pens, get ready. We're about to do some learning. All right, we're going to make some connections today, hopefully some new connections about this meal that we call communion. We're going to start in the book of Luke. Luke is the third book in the New Testament. It is after Matthew and Mark. We're going to go to chapter 22. Here's where we're going to start, verses 14 and 15. And when the hour came, he reclined at the table, and the apostles were with him. Of course, they're talking about Jesus. And he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. So Jesus is sitting at a meal with his disciples, and it's called the Last Supper because it was the last meal that Jesus ate with his disciples before he would suffer. Now, you know the story. After they ate, they went out. Judas came to the garden, and he was betrayed, arrested, tried, and crucified. So that's why it was his last supper. But 
this Last Supper had a long-standing tradition in Jewish culture and in Israel's history. This was an unmistakable time of remembrance for the Jewish people when they would come together and celebrate their freedom from bondage in Egypt. This time was known as Passover, as the scriptures say. Now let's take a look back at this same chapter in Luke 22. We're going to just take a look at verses 7 and 8 and hear from Jesus. So it says here, Then came the day of unleavened bread, on which the Passover lamb was to be crucified. So Jesus sent Peter and John, saying, Go, prepare the Passover for us, that we may eat it. Okay, Jesus just made that sound really easy, go prepare. (laughs) But I'm thinking like this. This is a festival. This is a feast. There had to be about week-long preparation for this, especially for the women. The buzz about town, the cleaning of homes, the removing of leaven, which we would call yeast, had to be completely removed from the house. Well, you know, if a country has the staple of bread, then there's a lot of cleaning to be done. But there's also the preparation of the lamb, There is getting out the wine that has been saved especially for this holy meal. And then there's the bread that now needs to be made without yeast. That bread without leaven gives us the Passover's alternate name, the Feast of Unleavened Bread. This is a reminder of the Israelites' hasty exit from Egypt. The Israelites had to be ready at a moment's notice. All right. We're going to do a little time travel and go back just a bit and take a trip to the beginning of where the Passover feast was initiated. We're going into Exodus, which is in the Old Testament. For some of you, that may sound like, blow it off, we got to get into it. Genesis, then Exodus, second book of the Old Testament. Let's hear what God tells his people about how to eat and then what happens next. Okay, if you're with me, Exodus 12, verses 11 through 14. God says, In this manner you shall eat it, with a belt fastened, sandals on your feet, your staff ready, and you shall eat in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. For I will pass through the land of Egypt that night, and I will strike down the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast. And on all the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgments. I am the Lord. The blood shall be assigned for you on the houses where you are, and when I see the blood, I will pass over you. And no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. This day shall be for you a memorial day, and you shall keep it as a feast to the Lord throughout your generations, a statute forever. You shall keep it as a feast. So you may know the story. God's people enslaved in Egypt, 400 years, lorded over by Pharaoh, who thought he was God. He did whatever he wanted to the Israelite people. God went to Moses in the desert and chose him as the instrument of deliverance and brought him to Egypt to this hard-hearted Pharaoh. He would not let God's people go, so God decided, okay, 10 plagues, And that last plague is where we get this idea of Passover from. God gave the antidote to Israel so that the firstborn in their homes would not be killed as what was going to happen in Egypt. God said, take a lamb, kill it, and put the blood on the doorposts at the top 
and on both sides. Then when the angel of death came, it would pass over the home and the eldest child in that house would live. That's what Passover was all about. And in Exodus um, 12, verse 14 says this was to be forever a remembrance. So when Jesus and his disciples are sitting in what we just read in Luke in the New Testament, they're just being good Jews. They're observing their time of remembrance of their freedom. Now, let's return to the table where Jesus is sitting with his disciples. They're in remembrance because Passover was to be celebrated forever. But Jesus said something during his last supper that turned it into the Lord's Supper. He took this long-held tradition in the Jewish culture and made it all about him. So the Jews had been waiting for this person they called the Messiah. They expected another one like Moses to come, to be a great deliverer and their savior. Here was Jesus announcing to his closest companions that he himself was the fulfillment of this prophecy and the completion of the old covenant. Turn with me to Matthew 26, and let's hear how this starts. Matthew is the first book in the New Testament. If you're going through your Bible, Malachi, and then the New Testament begins with Matthew. We're going to chapter 26, verses 26 through 28. Now, as they were eating, Jesus took the bread, and after blessing it, he broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, Take, eat, this is my body. And then he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he took it and gave it to them and said, Drink all of it, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. So you hear that word covenant again, right? We were talking about meals, now we're talking about covenants. What just happened? (laughs) Okay, so let me explain. The Old Covenant is represented by the Old Testament in your Bible. And throughout the Old Covenant, God had made many promises to the Israelites. After he brought them out of slavery and deposited them into the Promised Land, he gave them many more promises after that. And what Israel had been waiting for, this ultimate deliverer, was also to serve as king. He would be a king who would rule and reign with justice and righteousness forever. That's who Israel had been waiting for, the Messiah, who would set up a world marked by eternal peace, the one who was to come. This was who they were waiting for. And while they waited, Israel was to live by God's commandments. You know those Ten Commandments that Moses brought down? That was how they were to live, so that other people outside of the Jewish faith could see how God blessed them and want to be part of it. Does that sound familiar at all? Watching people's lives who are serving a great God and people might want to know? Just think about it. The difference between us and them is that when God's chosen people broke his commandments, they had to literally take a lamb and slaughter it 
and offer it on, as a sacrifice for the forgiveness of their sins. The children of God in that time used to relate to God through animal sacrifices and their obedience to his commandments. Today, we as children of God get off a lot easier. We relate to God through Christ's sacrifice. Not easy for him, but easy for us. And then Christ fulfilled with perfect obedience all of God's commandments. So those few sentences explaining the Old and New Testament, that's just what I can get into today. But if you want to learn more about that, here's a shameless plug for my summer study that's coming up. The biblical narrative Chris and I will be teaching on for the next five weeks. Come, take the time to learn about the Old and New Covenant. All right, shameless plug over, back to the message. If we take a look at Matthew 26, verses 1 and 2, we see that Jesus clearly is showing that his crucifixion is tied to the Passover, making him that lamb to be slain. Let's look at Matthew 26, verses 1 and 2. It starts with, when Jesus had finished all these sayings, so in, verse tw in chapter 25, he had a lot of things to say, and in the beginning of 26, after he finished everything, he said to his disciples, you know that after two days, the Passover is coming, and the Son of Man will be delivered to be crucified. Jesus is taking this time of year that is integral to the Jewish calendar, when families would have come together from near and far to remember their freedom from slavery, to announce a new covenant, which will now require the sacrifice of his body and the shedding of his blood. During the Lord's Supper, Jesus mentions this bread and this cup. So as I prepared for this message, I reached out to this organization called Jews for Jesus. Now, these people are ones who believe that Jesus was truly the Messiah, that Jews should no longer be waiting. Now, they don't call themselves Christians. They call themselves Messianic Jews because they believe that, well, Jesus, the Messiah, has already come. But there are still Jews that are waiting, and so that's where they make the distinction. I received some teachings from David Brickner, who is part of this organization, and what David taught me about this bread that Jesus was talking about during this time in the Passover meal is called the bread of affliction. So I want to show you this piece, of, this piece of matzah. This is what Jews call bread. This is the unleavened bread, matzah. If you can't see it all the way in the back, I apologize. But this is what Jesus would have taken, bread of affliction, and he would have broken it. But I just want you to see if you can. It's striped. It's pierced. This bread of affliction was in the matzah tosh, which is a bag that holds the matzah. And there are three compartments. There's one at the top, in the middle, and at the bottom. And if you think Father, Son, Holy Spirit, this one, striped and pierced, was removed from the middle. And it was called the afikomen. We would take it and we would break it. And one piece was served as a meal. The other was taken and hidden. The word afikomen means the one who is to come. So the other piece that was hidden, it would be taken, and they'd kind of play like a hide-and-seek with the little kids. At the end of the meal, the kids would go out and find it and bring it back. So here's what David said. Think about this. 
For thousands of years, Jews have been performing this ritual. The three compartments in the bag, the middle taken out. And what we now understand is that that stood for Jesus, beaten and pierced. This piece of bread was given for food, and then this half was brought back as the one who is to come. Jews would think Messiah because he had yet to come until Jesus came. We today think resurrection because the Messiah has come. But now, I just want to stop for a second and talk about that piece that gets hidden. The children go out and find it. I sat with that for a little bit and thought, and it brought to mind Jesus' words in Matthew 18, 3, that unless we become like little children, we will not enter the kingdom of God. The innocence, the curiosity, the willingness to seek. Just my thoughts. So why spend all this time unpacking the Passover when we're here to talk about communion? Two words, biblical literacy. We have to know the history of something in order to appreciate the present. See, when God instituted the Passover meal, it was a miraculous salvation of the Israelites from death. The blood put on the doors. The meal was for them to understand their salvation, that even though it seemed really strange, blood on doorposts, how is that supposed to save us? Well, Jesus instituted a similar meal with the Lord's Supper to demonstrate his power, though, over death as a miraculous salvation for those who would believe. Now, sometimes it sounds strange to people. How is believing in this God I can't see supposed to save me? Let me just tell you, Jesus came to save those who are not yet alive. You may feel like you're walking around alive, but if you don't know Jesus, I'm just here to tell you, like, like Paul said in Ephesians 2, I'm going to read it to you so you're not offended by me. <laughs> Paul says in Ephesians 2, verse 1, And you he made alive who were dead in your trespasses and sins. So there is sin that separates us from God. And because of that sin, we are dead. Until we come and take Jesus as our Passover lamb, who was slain for the covering of our sins. The power of the lamb's blood in Egypt was a sign for the angel of death to pass over. The power of Jesus' blood is to bring dead things back to life. True life in relationship with God. It is blood that was shed for us. And if we accept it as the one way, the only truth, the only life, true life in connection with God, then and only then will we truly live. Jesus was introduced by John the Baptist as the Lamb of God who came to take away the sin of the world. Jesus was that pure, spotless Passover lamb. But can I tell you, he's not just that lamb anymore. <clears throat> he is that Afikoman, remember? He is the one who is to come. He is the ultimate deliverer, the one who brings peace, the king who is planning on coming back soon for you and me who are ready to meet him. He will rule and reign with justice and righteousness. 
He's on his way back. That should get somebody excited. Come on now. He is now the one we have been waiting for to return. But until he does, we join in a meal practicing this habit of grace, this time of thankfulness and remembrance, because we have a good God who deserves to be remembered. For those of you that may be on the outside looking in, can I just tell you, he is your lamb. He was slain for your sins, just like he was slain for mine. But you have to accept him and then join us at the communion table. I can tell you, I've been a Christian for 40 years, and that may be longer than some of you in this room have been alive. But I have walked with God and have tasted and seen that the Lord is good. So like I told you, nobody's lemon meringue pie can compare to my daddy's. Nobody's life can compare to what God has for you when you come into relationship with him. I have stood outside in the world and have tried all of it, even as a believer. I've fallen, I've tripped, I've stumbled, and I've come back. But when I've been out there taking what the world has to give, it tastes like sawdust, sandpaper, and ashes. You don't want that. My advice as a fellow sojourner is accept Jesus' offer and join the family and come to the table. When we hear the Lord's Supper, we're reminded that Jesus, like the Father, instituted a ceremonial meal like father, like son. He instituted a meal of remembrance so that when we would sit and think about the way he delivered us, we would take notice of how much he loved us. He gave up a throne in heaven to come here and walk amongst us because he loved us that much. He didn't have to do that. So communion, let's make the connections. Communion is rooted in Paul's words in the Greek. He uses this word called koinonia in 1 Corinthians 10.16. 1 Corinthians 10.16 talks about how the relationship with the risen Lord and the benefits of salvation that we have as believers. Paul says it this way. The cup of blessing that we bless is it not a participation in the body of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? So there's the blood and the body of Christ that we are participating in. Koinonia, if you're still taking notes, means participation. Paul teaches that this supper ties participants closer to one another and to Christ. The reason that this is important is because in just the next chapter over, Paul starts rebuking the church of Corinth because there were some people coming to this communal meal and just making it all about themselves. They would come, get full, and eat before other people even showed up. And so the table was empty. So Paul took this as an opportunity to give instructions about how to participate in this table. So I'm not going to read it to you. We're going to pick out a few verses in just a moment. But Paul wanted the people to know, as Jesus had instructed, how to approach the table. Paul was teaching the Corinthians, and thereby us, how we should approach with thanksgiving this time of celebration 
we are to be mindful of who comes to the table and how we come to the table. Paul's words are about remembering, about sharing, discerning, and being worthy. Let's start with remembering. 1 Corinthians 11, verse 26. So I'm going to tell you right now, I'm going out of order. If that bothers you, I apologize. There's a point. You'll notice. <laughs> 1 Corinthians 11:26. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Okay, remembering. As often as you do this. So then, how often? Well, Jesus deserves to be remembered with reverence and thankfulness. But it says, as often, which is kind of whenever. So this isn't about intervals. This is about attitude. It doesn't matter how often you come to the table if you come with the wrong attitude. <laughs> it's about the remembrance of Jesus. He is to be your focus when you come to the table. So there are churches that do this every day, multiple times a day. Like us, we do this once a week, and still others just on special occasions. Regularity, intervals, doesn't matter. It's about the attitude, focus on Jesus. Next, there's sharing. This asks the question, who's allowed at the table? Well, I think back to Jesus' table and the disciples there, and I can remember a doubter, I can remember a prideful man, two brothers with a lot of anger issues, uneducated, stinky fishermen, and there were some guys there that got named, but you never got a personality kind of attached to those names. I think of those people as those who do the background work, who go unnoticed. And ladies, just so you don't think I forgot about you, and like you went unnoticed, because there were only men at Jesus' table for a reason. Culture dictated who he chose to lead the movement, but Jesus never left women out. You think about Mary who sat at his feet, the sister of Martha, when he said she chose the better part. You think about the woman at the well who was one of his first evangelists. You think about the women at the feet of the cross when most of the disciples had ran away. And you think of the women who met him after his resurrection on that day. So whether you got attitude, you're prideful, you're uneducated, you doubt, or you're a woman who feels like you go unnoticed, you are welcome at the table. As long as you have stood in the flow of grace. Brian, in the first uh, episode in this series, talked about how grace flows downhill and it requires humility to stand in that flow. All who have stood in the path of grace are welcome at this table. Now, remembering, sharing, now to discerning. 1 Corinthians eleven twenty nine says this, For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. So what does that mean, discerning? It means to think deeply toward a depth of understanding. So I ask you, when you approach the table, do you do it mindlessly? Oh, here's my cracker, here's my juice. Or do you do it discerning the Lord's body? 
do you think of Jesus as just a good man, prophet, teacher? Or is he Lord? Are his words words that you can just take or leave? Are they conviction for your soul? Do they give meaning to your life? Is he your life? As you discern the Lord's body, what is your view of Jesus when you approach communion? He must be Lord and Savior. He must be Lord and Savior, or else you're, giving, you're doing judgment on yourself. And that is not a position to be with, with God. But we get there when we come to worthy. There's a way to fix it. So remember, share, discern, and then worthy. Now this is not about you working to be worthy, because we can't. But it is about not taking this meal lightly. And here's what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 11, 27 through 28. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and the blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. Paul is stressing self-examination. So that we don't take this meal lightly, self-examination is our call to repentance. That is how we discern the body of the Lord correctly. We come with a repentant heart. Not self-focused, though. Not self-conscious. See, we hear self-examination, and we can start to get down on ourselves. That's not what this is about. We need to start focusing on the inclusive, all-encompassing, saving grace of God through Jesus Christ. So I don't know about you, but I've come down these aisles to communion throughout my 40 years of a, as a Christian, and I've taken the cracker, and I've taken the juice, and I've gone back to my seat, and I've sat there, and I've been confessing all of my sins to God. Not that that's bad, but here's what happens, is all the confessing takes over my brain, and I'm not focusing on the elements I'm holding in my hand, that this is about Jesus' blood and body that covers all those sins. I'm super focused on my shame and my guilt and all of that. That is not at all discerning the Lord's body either. I should be thankful. I should be grateful. I don't know if you might feel like, but I keep committing the same old sins. How is God going to forgive me? Well, can I tell you something? Stop focusing on your ability to fail and start focusing on God's ability to heal. He is here for you. The stuff that you're doing, he can heal you. But you got to bring it to him. Keep coming to the table and let him meet you where you are. Now that doesn't mean haphazard and un unconfessed sin, but that does mean stop letting that cloud your judgment about you and about how God sees you. That's not how he sees you. I want to read this quote to you from David Bruner because I think it'll sum up my point best. Frederick Bruner says this, our deepest single need is the forgiveness of sins. Our main block in fellowship with God, others, and ourselves is our sin and our consciousness of sin, the guilt. We feel certain that God must hate our evil thoughts, our acts, our words, and even more than we do. And that consequently, 
God must have a profound aversion to us. Anybody ever felt like that? I know I have. But the Lord's Supper continually reminds us, on the contrary, communion must conquer consciousness. A consciousness that is no longer the last word on our case. Jesus' blood is over us, the last word about our status with God. God's word is, I'm covered. I'm passing over. That's what God says about you. You're not carrying that anymore. Jesus carried that. Let it go. Take the focus off you and put it on to Jesus and come to the table. And after you've come to the table, here's your one and only responsibility. Live like Jesus. That's hard to do, but you have the Holy Spirit inside of you. Like I said, get the focus off you and onto the healing power of God through Jesus, and the Holy Spirit is there to help you. I sat with a brother of mine in St. Matthew's Episcopal Church in San Mateo in studying for this message. His name is Father Jay Watton. And here's what he told me, which is why I tell you, as you take this communion meal, you go out and you live like Jesus. Here's what he tells his people after they take communion. He tells them, you become what you eat. These elements symbolize the blood and body of Christ. And he tells them, as you take it, you identify with him. And so as you become what you eat, your identity in Christ, with that mindset, you leave here in service and go out into the world to our community, our country, and the world, and you live like Christ would live, because through you is how Christ helps the world around us. Isn't that awesome? You become what you eat. Therefore, let me encourage you once again, get the focus off yourself. Let the grace of communion rid you of all self-consciousness. Root your identity in Christ. Remember, you are loved, you are forgiven, you are redeemed, you are adopted. And the blood of the Lamb has covered you, and you are welcome at the table. Will you pray with me? Father, thank you for what you did through Jesus. Thank you that he is our pure and spotless lamb. I pray that as people come to the table today, they are not conscious of anything but what Jesus did for them. I just ask, Lord Jesus, that you would bless us with your presence. In your name, amen. It's now time to come to the table. If you have done business with Jesus, and he is your savior, you are welcome. Come to the table.